Welcome to Coach House Talks. Today we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul's personal letters in the Bible from 1 Timothy to Philemon, um, as well as some points from the book of Hebrews. Uh, before any of that, I'd like to start with a short story. When I was very young, <laughs> thank you, um, I was a poor student. I had trouble focusing on my studies, and I always fell asleep in class. I just uh, had a big book before me, and you sort of put your head behind the book, and you're kind of gone. <laughs> really. Um, between the ages 9 to 13, I had about 50 classmates, and I almost always genuinely ranked at the very bottom of the list. Um, because of my physical condition, I also lagged behind others in, in a race whenever we had physical education classes. And I would always sleep through all my classes, and I would always sleep through church as well. <laughs> um, when I was 13, I underwent a particular procedure on my body. And after, after the procedure, uh, my situation changed. My physical condition improved, and I realized that I was given the opportunity to keep up with the normal kids for the first time. When I was 14, I read through all the books about theology and apologetics in our school library. When I was 15, I applied to study uh, first-year university classes. And when I was 16, I was ranked the top three in most of my classes. When I was 17, I won scholarships to help pay my way into university, uh, which some of you would know would be the University of St. Andrews up in Scotland. And in all these years, I continued to sleep through my pastor's preachings on most Sundays. <laughs> this, was, this was before your time. <laughs> On the surface, this is a funny situation, but the reality of the situation is a bit different. Before I was 13, I originally slept through the sermons because I physically did not have the energy or awareness to keep it together for more than 30 minutes. After my condition improved, I gained the ability to listen and discern what exactly the pastor was talking about. And the pastor's sermons were mostly stories about the pastor's younger days, many decades ago, when he was healing crowds and creating miracles led by the Spirit. And they were very interesting stories, but I realized I couldn't find much teaching or doctrine in each sermon. The pastor never went beyond the nativity story or replays of the resurrection, preferring instead to incite the spirit into acting. These sermons contributed very little, if anything, to my spiritual growth. For this reason, I chose to continue to sleep through um, Sunday mornings for years to come. Um, let's keep my story in mind while we return to Paul's personal letters. 
these letters are not written in chronological order, but by order in length. Some of these letters were written during Paul's imprisonment, and some were written during the times when he was released. First Timothy is the longest of his personal letters, and Philemon is his shortest. We call them personal letters because these letters were addressed to individuals by name. Though they were written to individuals, Paul also knew that his letters will be publicly read out among churches, which is why he always began his letters with rather unique introductions. From the first two verses of 1 Timothy, he begins with, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Timothy is about encouraging personal responsibility to faithfulness, understanding doctrine, and confronting false teaching in the church. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 29 to 30, Paul left the city of Ephesus with the following words to the elders of the Ephesian church. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul was imprisoned by the Romans afterwards. After two years, he was released and he returned to Ephesus to find a church filled with false teaching. Because Paul had to leave for Macedonia, he left Timothy, someone who, who he led to the faith, in Ephesus as Paul's representative to sort out this mess. First Timothy was then written to equip Timothy for the task ahead. First Timothy chapter one, verses three to four says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people to not teach false doctrines any longer and devote or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The, the thing about false teaching is that they're not just limited to the obvious conspiracy theories or even the demonic rituals you read about online. It, it may not be as obvious as that. You see, everyone who gets caught up in emphasizing the wrong things are in danger of promoting false teaching. The Ephesian church thought it was very interesting to talk about genealogies. I, I don't really get that, but hey. <laughs> and they quite simply had long-standing beliefs and superstition about the local culture and community life. Nothing has changed today, in essence. People want to modify Christianity all the time. We know this about the prosperity gospel, where people say wealth 
shows how much God loves you. We know about politicians who try to paint Jesus as someone who represents all aspects of that political party and hates everything the other side stands for. And we also know about hellstone, no, that's wrong, hellfire and brimstone, hellstone, um, evangelists who think it's a wonderful day whenever they manage to scare a mass of unbelievers to heaven. On the flip side, we also hear about churches who say that anything goes as long as there's God in your heart and that God's always on your side because God loves you and you can do no wrong. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. Doctrine is a simple word that many of us find dry and boring on the best of days. I tell you the truth, doctrine is important to God and definitely should be important to his people. God does not demand his people to be expert theologians, but his people cannot give authority to fables or romanticize spiritual fantasies. I want to clarify that believing that doctrine doesn't matter is also doctrine. Doctrine doesn't mean fuddy-duddy medieval nonsense. It's any set of beliefs that you hold to be true. The Ephesian Christians received the gospel and a very specific doctrine, but they decided to be creative with the doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 5 say, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Maybe the teachers of the Ephesian churches had good intentions or maybe they wanted to make Christianity a more formal occasion but it doesn't matter what their original intentions are because this is false teaching. Being married or not married does not make you more or less holy to God. You are permitted to eat and drink whatever you like in healthy moderation and thanksgiving. Why would you make up these fantasies and be distracted from the truth that is handed to us? We need to stop being arrogant. We do not get to sacrifice 
or formalize anything to force God to owe us something. Second Timothy is a letter that focuses on the theme of being personally responsible for the faith that we hold despite the circumstances that surround us. Second Timothy is written from Paul's second Roman imprisonment. After he wrote this letter, he was condemned and executed in Rome, supposedly under the command of Nero. Second Timothy is the last letter we have from Paul, and he knew that he would soon be executed. Second Timothy chapter one, verses 13 to 15 say, what you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. We talk a lot about Paul but we often forget, or maybe we don't know, that Paul was not a celebrated Christian ministry hero at the end of his life. To make it very clear, Paul was not a hero to the churches of his time. Paul was so committed to the faith, so fearless in challenging cultural and popular beliefs if they clashed against the faith, that he was actually unpopular in the churches. He was abandoned by the churches by the time he was imprisoned for the second time. In chapter four, verse 16, Paul writes, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Of all the church communities that Paul helped set up, not a single locally available Christian brother or sister stood up for him in court. No one turned up. But Paul writes his last letter to Timothy, not to complain, but to encourage. In chapter two, verses eight to 10, we see Paul's gospel in the first sentence. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the, for the elect, for they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. For Paul, he summarizes the central points to Timothy, not because Timothy would forget, but that every part of that message cannot be taken away from the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Messiah that Israel has been looking for, having truly resurrected from the dead, 
not just in some spiritually vague manner, but in body, as fully God, and descended from David as evidence of being fully man. These points cannot be denied by anyone who claims to follow Jesus' teachings. Paul was locked up for the gospel, having caused religious conflict. Nowadays, we get countries where we get locked up in mental institutions for believing in actual bodily resurrection or even the existence of a God who lived on earth and allowed himself to die because humanity is hopeless to save itself. This is the truth. Do you or do we dare to get locked up for the rest of our lives for believing and publicly announcing the gospel? And I think we'll have to be honest, perhaps many of us don't dare. We tend to overestimate our own courage when actual problems come before us. Paul could have easily kept his life if he just spouted some nonsense about how he believed that Jesus was a good teacher with some good vibes to admire, if he said something like, oh, but the claim that Jesus was actually a god is too much, you know. How can you actually believe that? And so on. He could have fitted nicely into our modern day society if he just kept his mouth shut and kept the status quo, like many of us do. But Paul was courageous, expecting trouble abandonment, and execution at the hands of the lawful legal state. He died to the Romans, and he would have been abandoned in this day and age too, with many of us, us, civilly avoiding him, because Paul never did stop proclaiming the gospel and challenging his own church communities about incorrect beliefs they had about the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Titus is a letter from Paul on what makes capable leaders in the church. A responsibility not just limited to the existing leadership, but also for everyone within the church to understand. Similarly to the situation in 1 Timothy, being after Paul's first Roman imprisonment, Paul worked together with Titus in a city, Crete, establishing churches. Paul had to leave with Titus staying, so Paul wrote a letter to instruct and encourage Titus on church building. Titus chapter 1, 
verses 7 to 9 say, Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. A church cannot appoint someone in a leadership position simply because they're familiar with the person or because the person is one of the older folks in the room. Paul is very clear on the requirements of an overseer in the church in this section. And different translations have taken this to mean bishop, church leader, elder, and so on. But the meaning is quite clear. This is a position where the church not only needs to deeply understand the candidate's character, but the candidate must live righteously and courageously, knowing doctrine and daring to go against what is false teaching. This is not asking for a shameless person who goes around offending everyone or everything, but this is also not asking for a person who quietly and smilingly or civilly accepts all kinds of interpretations of the scripture. This is requiring someone who has the capability to look after and guard the church in spirit and in truth. Again, Titus repeats a very similar situation that we see in the letters to Timothy. Titus chapter three, verses nine to 11 say, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As uncivil as it sounds, the church has no need of people who call themselves Christians but stir up trouble and argue for argument's sake. If there's something important to discuss before the attention of the church, then it needs to be meaningful and disciplined as directed from God. It cannot be without substance. Philemon is yet another letter from Paul. It's about settling accounts and appealing in Christian mercy to remove barriers between the enslaved and free. It's the shortest and last of Paul's writings written during his first Roman imprisonment to Philemon, a wealthy Christian who was a good friend of Paul, 
Paul writes this letter to appeal to Philemon on the behalf of Onesimus, an escaped slave of Philemon. Philemon chapter 1, verses 10 to 19 say, That I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not be seemed forced but be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you may have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owns you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back not to mention that you owe me your very self. Here's some context. Onesimus was a slave who escaped from Philemon and met Paul in Rome, who led him to faith. We're not here to debate the ethics of slavery or the slave institution back in ancient Rome. We know that it was legal in any case, and masters had rightful, state-approved, total control and ownership of their slave. You can take it up with the ancient Romans if you disagree of how things were run back then. But in any case, Onesimus had done wrong in escaping his master. Under Roman law, slaves could be crucified for much lighter crimes. Furthermore, Paul even mentioned that if Onesimus has done Philemon wrong or owned Philemon anything, Philemon was to charge it to Paul's account. Let's make it absolutely clear. Um, Paul is asking to settle accounts in case the escaped slave might have stolen anything from Philemon as well. Stealing is also capital crime, worthy of death. By all rights, Philemon could have Onesimus die under Roman law for escaping, and doubly so for stealing. Just because someone has accepted Christ into their lives does not relieve them of their debts or wrongdoings in the world. Paul did not write a command, but asked Philemon to have a change of heart towards the former slave. Being a Christian actually increases our obligations to make things right by settling accounts. Paul was willing to cover the bill for any stolen goods for Onesimus, but he still sent Onesimus back 
to Philemon, who was given a choice in how to treat this escaped slave. We must never forget that God never sweeps our responsibilities under a rug or sweeps any of our sins under a rug. Jesus was, a, was sacrificed as a one-time payment to settle our accounts with God, to cover a multitude of sins for those who believe. However, this letter to Philemon reminds us that Christian living also includes human responsibility, spiritual accountability, and an individual's decision for a change of heart rather than waiting for the entire country's moral environment to change. Because let's be honest, the country won't change to become fully Christian at any point. Hebrews will be last of the books that we cover. It's a letter to Christians with a Jewish background. The author is unknown, but tradition has the offer down as Paul. Hebrews is written to encourage Christians who were facing persecution for accepting Jesus as the Messiah, as well as making clear the consequences of departing from Jesus. This encouragement rests in the doctrine of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter four, verses 13 to 16 say, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to emphasize empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our, our, in our time of need. In the beginning of the next chapter, Hebrews chapter five, verses one to two say, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, for he himself is subject to weakness. This is a very important point in Hebrews because many philosophies in this world today go with the idea that if God, if he exists at all, does not care for us, or maybe we'll go with the reverse, which is more popular these days, that God empathizes with us in such a way that he is just like us, an eternally suffering God, 
locked in and resonating in all our moments of weakness and sin. And the problem is both are false teachings, very popular and very false. They emphasize on the wrong things and lose sight of what is true. Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus, human as he was, experienced temptation but did not sin. Jesus' story is not one of humans where humans have fallen into hopeless degeneracy and despair. But Jesus' story is of sacrifice, triumph, and intercession. In sacrifice, he experienced great suffering and judgment that should have been ours to bear and died on the cross at the will of the Father. In triumph, he resurrected as living evidence that the cycle of endless despair in sin and sacrifice has been broken and that there is hope in the glorious work of salvation that is finished. And in intercession, he sits at the right hand of the Father as our high priest, giving to those who believe access to the throne of grace. If you emphasize on any of these three points and forget the other two points of the three, this is false teaching. You cannot just focus on suffering. You cannot just focus on triumph or intercession. All three make up the truth. The author of Hebrews makes a point here in this understanding about high priests, sacrifices, and the identity of Jesus. This is not a complicated message. This is something mature Christians should already know. Hebrews chapter five, verses 11 to 14 say, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by the constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Every Christian is called to help teach and disciple others. The offer of Hebrews is calling us out as a general notice now, not just to the Jews. If we're not clear about basic doctrine, if our hearts cannot tell apart basic truths, the Bible tells us that we are just babies in spirit. And this isn't just some low level insult that you're getting from the streets. This is the Bible telling us that while spiritual milk isn't a bad thing, 
Every Christian needs to grow past this point to be ready to pick up some solid food, clear doctrine and teaching rooted in but not confined to the ABCs of our Christian nativity scenes. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 29 teaches us about the consequences of turning away from the faith. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone who deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that has sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace? To be very clear, the context of this passage has nothing to do with backsliding, which is a dangerous position, but not necessarily hopeless. Here, the author of Hebrews is specifically talking about a situation where members of the church who have been taught about Jesus and have publicly declared him to be Messiah are considering renouncing this faith due to various situations religious persecution at this time, and returning to the lifestyle and to the doctrine of Judaism. Let's flip it around. We can, we can also say this is also written to those who are considering having publicly declared their faith before the church and would want to return to the doctrine of one that is not Christian. Fine. To treat the blood of Christ as something that is unholy something that does not have the power to save, means that there is no sacrifice remaining for those who believe. Again, the truth of doctrine is important. Those who do not believe in the blood of the covenant or do not understand what the work of Jesus' sacrifice means for us, practically, spiritually, and whatever else adjectives you want to throw in there, have no part in Christ's salvation. This is not about failing to scalp tickets to heaven. This is simply cause and effect. If you don't actually care about Jesus, if you don't put any stock in his identity as a savior because people say, okay, cool, he's a savior. Cool, let's move on. How can you take part in his salvation? It doesn't make sense. Cause and effect. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one to three say, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with the perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hebrews is about having faith in the identity of Jesus Christ. It, Christianity was never about depending on your neighbors or your own inner strength. It's not even about combating the evils of the world or rushing around to do good in anything that you can do. It's not even about being filled up with the emotions and being all spiritual for Christ, like I know some of us enjoy this tingly feeling in the back of our heads. It's about being confident in our knowledge of Jesus, who has opened up a way, true but specific, to come before God. Paul's letters and the book of Hebrews have a very clear theme going on. Every Christian, regardless of age or learning, must be very clear on what we believe in. And every Christian must be capable, responsible for knowing the difference between true or false doctrine. At the same time, we need to recognize if we're being distracted from things that take your time away from God. I think most of us are safe from being distracted from studying Jesus' genealogy. Let's be honest, it's not very interesting to us right now because our interests have changed with the modern times. Our context has changed. But what about the interests of our time now, where Christians spend far too much time trying to merge our spiritual lives with national politics or creative reinterpretations of the Bible? I'll say it very clearly. For a Christian, our number one priority is not pursuing whatever interests us, even if it relates to God. Our purpose in life is to know God. And this means we have to continue to learn more about him actively, carefully, and daily beyond our Christian ABCs. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.